You are listening to Spacetime Mind. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. We want information. 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 Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I am a free man. God, we're on the air. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Space Time Mind. I'm Pete Mandick, and with me today is my good friend and colleague from William Patterson University, Professor Eric Steinhardt. Welcome. Hi there. Hi, I'm Eric. You are Eric, or at least his head. I am his head. You've uh, you've lent your head to the Space Time Mind. Okay. Good. And uh, what else we got going on? Oh, look, I got a, I, I got your book. Hey, all right. There's a book. I wrote it. Your Digital Afterlives. Yep. I can't read the rest. Uh, Uh, Something, something, computational. Theories of life after death. Yes. And uh, you've got a webpage that we will link to when the podcast is published. People can go to spacetimemind.com and click links and see a picture of you on a horse. Yes. I'm on my horse, Shawnee, in 1969. And you will always be on your horse, Shawnee, in 1969. In the mind of uh, the eternal computer that simulates our universe. Yes. Yeah. So what is the deal with you and computers? Uh, I was a computer scientist long ago, and I still am in my heart of hearts. And so I like extending computational ideas into, you know, from logic and mathematics into metaphysics. Uh, and I wish more philosophers were more deeply into that, trying to see how that all works. There's, there's great stuff, cellular automata, the game of life, stuff like that. Um, what's with so, me computers? They're great. True or false, everything is computational. True. Everything is computational, except the stuff that's not, but that's really far out stuff. What is the stuff that's not? You know, you've got to get, I think, really far out into mathematics to talk about stuff that's not computational. Um, So mathematicians distinguish between these two things called V and L, and V is the total sort of iterative hierarchy of pure sets, and L is the constructible hierarchy. And so there are computer scientists and mathematicians philosophers. One guy is all three, a guy named Joel Hamkins, a fascinating guy uh, here in New York City. Um, And he's argued with a bunch of his students that um, computability really is this thing called L. Anything in L can be computed, and there are computers of any transfinite degree within L. 
Now, it's a mystery as to whether L equals V or not. Okay. So there might be stuff in V that's not in L. And if there is, that stuff would not be computable. I see. But that's way out there, man. I mean, that's out beyond, like, the largest large cardinals in WoW. But is, is constructability, like, the sort of thing that intuitionists talk about in logic? Nah, those guys are old-fashioned. Those guys are old-school, and uh, intuitionists were really baffled by really tiny little infinities, like, you know, Aleph Nought. So, no, this is way past any of that stuff. This is really pretty... pretty ultra-modern stuff. I mean, okay. stuff that's been done in the last 15 years, maybe, or 10 years, um, and even more recent. So, yeah, you, you, you had to have a lot of really advanced set theory to get into this stuff. And it's weird. It's esoteric. I mean, it doesn't so affect what, us. What's the gist of, of the notion of construction here when, when something's said to be constructible in this sense? Uh, that's really technical. Okay. Forget I, forget I ever said it. Oh, no. But the idea is, yeah, the idea is you can have things that are like Turing machines, but a Turing machine's tape is usually only as long as the natural numbers, right? So for every natural number, there's a square on the Turing machine's tape. And Turing machines usually only run finitely many steps, so there's a finite sequence of the tapes. And sometimes people say, oh, they could run to limits, so you could have as many tapes as there are natural numbers plus a limit tape. And how many symbols can there be in each square of the tape? Well usually just say zero or one, but you could have any uh, natural number of symbols that could be written in a square. So what these mathematicians do is they just generalize those parameters, the length of the tape, the number of symbols you can write in a square, and the sequence of steps to any transfinite number. And what you get is the ability to compute all these transfinite structures. And so that's where the transfinite theory of computation goes. And then you get out into issues of constructability, which are, which are just way out there. Um, and stuff that's really complicated, subtle, and beautiful mathematics. But it's, it's far out. Let's, let's leave it alone. Oh, man. Um, you know what I'm, what I'm worried is going to happen is that a bunch of free will and consciousness freaks are going to decide they want to go live in V. Uh, you know, they would actually have to learn math. And between you and me... <laughs> They're not going to do that. <laughs> They're not very good at math, so I'm not worried. So for all sakes and purposes, we, we are in L. We're all just made out of L stuff. Yeah, we're in L. Uh, even if there's stuff in V that's not in L, we're in, we're, we're in L. You and I are in L. Yeah. So universe is in L. Any, any con almost, probably stuff that's not in L that's not in V really isn't even conceivable except as sort of these weirdo limits of inconceivability. Yeah. So Grand Priest is a guy who's who's done some thinking about some of that stuff. So, is he is he moving to V? I, I'm not really sure. Okay, you know, he's got these he's got these articles and books on the limits of thought and you know the extremities of logic that are required to talk about stuff that's sort of beyond these limits that we can talk about. So, yeah, there you go. We're in we're in L. Stay in L. So. You know, by osmosis or something, sharing an office, I have probably become convinced of a lot of things that you like that I hadn't previously been convinced about. Uh, get out of get out of my office. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to my old ways to to uh, to play devil's advocate. Yeah, all right. Uh, so um, 
I'm a physicalist, and I worry that you're not a physicalist. I'm a physicalist about all the stuff that's physical. Was mm-hmm. that a was that a crappy answer? I mean, well, so I, here's I think that um, so-called minds and people and and puppy dogs and stuff—they're all just made out of hydrogen and similar sorts of things. They're yeah. made out of particles, and particles are what are those? Spatio-temporal particulars, something like that. Okay. Um, so everything, anything that's um, that has to do with consciousness or intentionality, that is ontologically complex, and that will resolve into these relative simples. And the relative simples are, are the sorts of things that would get studied in microphysics. Um, yeah, but, I agree with you too. So you're a physicalist in that sense. Uh, you know, a lot of these debates, right, in philosophy of mind, are about stuff like minds and intentional agents and stuff like that. And since uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a computationalist. I mean, minds are basically just, I, you know, I don't know what the right way to say it is. Do they supervene yeah. on computations? Do they emerge from computations? I don't particularly care. But minds are uh, going to be, gee, should I say a bad word? I mean, no, I won't say bad words. I was almost going to say software, but that's bad. So I won't say bad word. I won't swear on the podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, for humans, minds are just, uh, you know, whatever, activities of brains or, or just our brains or body, yeah. you know, entire body. I like that view more than brains. Um, but uh, so in philosophy of mind, a lot of this physicalism is a thing about minds. But And I'm fine with that. Minds are just physical, at least human minds or any minds we know are just physical things. And the other minds are going to be computational things. And they aren't going to be whatever that, you know, very old and strange kind of Cartesian or Thomistic view about these immaterial thinking substances in in the way they conceived of them. So I don't I don't believe in anything like mind body dualism or anything like that. I'm just I'm just a you know when it comes to minds, especially the minds we know, I'm just a materialist, right? Yeah. But that doesn't follow that that everything is is uh, material. Obviously, I think there are lots of structures that aren't uh, material. Right. So what? So maybe we don't have any fights uh, between the two of us about philosophy of mind type stuff. But if we got into some more general ontological questions, like is there anything, is there anything more fundamental than um, physical particles? Uh, yeah, two things. I think right from sharing an office, I'm I'm convinced. So I when people ask me about minds, I just say ask Mandic. You know, whatever he says, I agree with. That's my view when it comes to minds. Um, and But minds are minds, and not everything is. The, one of the dangers of Cartesian kind of dualism is you're supposed to put everything in these two buckets, yeah. you know, mind or matter. And it's like, uh, well, wait a minute. Uh, there's a lot of other buckets. And so what's matter, right? And so minds are, uh, I'll use a bad word again, you know, they're reducible to or they're constructed out of material processes or structures. But then you know you start to look at what are what are particles? Okay, and I'm kind of going to go with with physics as far as we understand it, and say, well, they end up being like you know weirdo things, quantizations of certain fields, all right, certain distributions of you know forces or other kinds of physical qualities to points in space time, and so it's going to be you know it's going to be like Plato and the Timaeus, right? It's going to end up being like okay, you've got space time, and you've got these uh, 
property is distributed over space-time, and that's all going to be somehow reducible. I mean, this is Quine, right? I mean, this is, you know, a part of Quine that's sort of been lost in the depths of history, that the space-time fields out of which material things are constructed, sort of like gliders in the game of life or something, you know, those are just resolvable into set theoretic structures, right? Purely mathematical structures. And you look at the physics, and it just all dissolves into pure math. So a lot of people have picked up on that, right? Yeah. Obviously, Max Tegmark uh, right. is probably best known for that kind of view, right? He, he's a little extreme. He thinks it's sort of like everything... It's one thing to say everything physical is mathematical, and then he seems to also say everything mathematical is physical. And I, I think that's, uh, that's not right. You know, that's, 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 yeah. that's weird. That's too... That a lot of mathematical structures aren't... They certainly don't seem to have ordinary physical interpretations. He doesn't right. care, you know. He says mathematical existence yeah. is physical existence, and it's like okay, okay. Well, now it just sounds maybe terminological for him. Uh, yeah, he he thinks that, as far as I can tell, right? But the, but the Quinean set theoretic Pythagoreanism thing, it would make sense to say that not everything is physical. Yeah, I think that's right, right? Because Quine thinks that, or at least in the examples he gives, the things that the mathematical structures that are physical are things like, uh, you know, democracy and worlds, where you have exactly that thing. You have a spatio-temporal structure, and then you have some association uh, that, that links the points in that structure to various physical qualities like charge or mass or, you know, energy or vectors or force vectors or something like that. So Quine seems to pick out a certain subclass of mathematical structures for physicality, all right? And then there's other mathematical structures that don't have any physical interpretation. So yeah, the, Quine's view is different than Tegmark's. So um, what's at the bottom? If we, if Pure we sets, the empty set. Nothing. Yeah, the empty set. Oh, man. Buddha. I must... I must admit, I'm less upset about that than I used to I know, be. I know, man. Ago, I would just flip out. Yeah. I wish I had videos uh, of those days. That was before video. I we, we could have gotten. We would have gotten a, like a pterodactyl to make um, a clay impression of the event. But uh, <laughs> this was a long, long ago. And sometimes it still bothers me, but I realize like the reason why it bothers me less is because I, I realized that being bothered by the empty set and being a qualia freak are kind of the same thing. And I'd rather not be a qualia freak. <laughs> what does that mean? Be, being bothered by the empty set and being a qualia? Because they're both kind of mystical, sort of obfuscation. Well, the, what I'm seeing, the, the similarity is, is, you know, a lot of uh, contemporary qualia freaks will um, pitch their distress in terms of a need for intrinsic properties. They say right. things like, you know, science and math gives us a bunch of relations and right. uh, relational structures. And surely you can't have relations without something intrinsic, something that is inherently non-relational. Therefore, qualia. Qualia are going to play this role. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's real interesting. That's where I think you get into... Um, I see. Yeah, I mean, the set theoretic stuff sounds more radical. I th and I used to be kind of a jerk and put it in, in this radical, like, hey, hey, do you want to know, do you want, do you guys want to know the truth? Want to know the truth? Set theory, man. 
And it's not that, once you start to think about it in those relational terms, yeah, it's, it's basically the idea that it's a structuralist idea, and it goes with those kinds of things, right, uh, in philosophy of science, right, a kind of structural realism. Right. And that's, that's kind of the Quinean legacy there, I think. Um, and so you're saying, like, yeah, it, stuff is really ultimately relational, and right, you don't have these primitive, intrinsic whatever, qualia, feels, or, or uh, even this kind of primitive, intrinsic self-identity that goes with sort of substance metaphysics. Right. You know, substances have some kind of primitive, you know, thisness or primitive, you know, yeah, nature of their own. And right. I, I mean, for me, the benefit of all this stuff is just that it's, you know, clarity. You get relationalism, you got clarity. And, and I, you and I both agree, I think, that or we both seem to not like that aspect of the qualia stuff where it, it gets, it, it's always got clients behind it. You know, it's never... Would you oh, say clients? Clients. Yeah, there are consumers, right? I mean, it's like creationism, right? It's like you can have this really, really esoteric metaphysics and then you look at who are the clients, right? Who are the purchasers? Who are the consumers of it, mm -hmm. right? Who buys into it? And the people who buy into the qualia stuff are... are typically, in my view, a kind of a kind of religious group, right? They tend to be uh, people who have views about the mind that are that they use to anchor their kind of supernaturalism. Mm -hmm. You know, and so um, there's when you get into that that intrinsic, you know, intrinsic property, intrinsic quality thing where to say that, that it's not ultimately relationally analyzable. You, you get this mystery, because what is it, man? Well, right. I know it through my consciousness. It's mystery, dude. And now you've just op you open a door to the people. There are people who want that, you know, and they don't want it because of some really obscure theorem in logic or something. They want it because behind that is a whole complex emotional will to power, you know, of their, their religious view or something similar to that, you know, an anti, it's like anti-vaxxers, man. It's this anti-science uh, view. Yeah. So now, um, someone who doesn't know you might think that you poop on religion in general, and this is just a special case of you taking a big old dump on religion. Uh-oh. But if they did know you, they would know you, you're not a, you're not a party pooper when it comes to religion. Oh, no, man. I go out in the woods and dance around, man. Yeah, I do crazy stuff. Most of the things I do in philosophy generally nowadays fall under some kind of rubric of philosophy of religion. But it's not uh, theism in any traditional sense, and certainly not Abrahamic theism. So uh, I don't talk about God with a capital G in any, uh -huh. any sense at all. But there's lots of ways to be uh, religious or to be spiritual without being Abrahamic. Uh, and that's what I'm interested in, particularly interested in new Western religious movements that aren't uh, Abrahamic, aren't uh, Christian, Jewish, or Islamic, right? Non-Abrahamic stuff. So if, if we're going to be non-Abrahamic or, or non-theistic, what, what makes uh, a pattern of thought or an approach to philosophy or just or, or whatever, what makes you religious, what is the religious aspect? 
Yeah, religion's about doing stuff, I think, and it's about doing things that are relative to, uh, right, don't get me started. I mean, it's about doing things that are certainly relevant to some kind of saving power, some kind of power that you think is active in your life, something that helps you out in some way. I, there's a lot of ways to say this, and I don't want to get too far into that, but um, people are, it's better probably to talk about ways that people are religious in these alternative ways, right? Sure. And So by cases know, instead of overarching yeah, principles. Yeah, I think otherwise it gets too abstract too quick. I mean, I just met this guy at this conference over the weekend. Uh, he's uh, one of the leaders of this movement called Synthism, which is this apparently a pretty big deal in Scandinavia. Synthism? Like S-Y-N. Syn okay. Synthism. So there's like theism and atheism, and then there's syntheism. And I'm not sure what it is. Okay. But people are doing it, and they meet... Uh, they gather, they have these little rituals and stuff, and so there, there are these new movements. There's also, of course, there's also the, the kind of contemporary neo-pagan movements. There's, uh, there's I, I note that it just uh, last week, right, a Wiccan priestess gave the uh, invocation to the Iowa State Legislature. All right. They were not all happy about that. There's things Aww. happening. Yeah, they were, they were upset, you know. And so some of them were. Some of them were like, all right, okay. But there's other, there's all kinds of fascinating ways that, uh, you know, strange transhumanists, there are, uh, right, all these people doing stuff with rationality and spiritual atheism. Uh, I mentioned the pagans, the kind of these groups that are also atheistic pagans, atheopagans, uh, humanistic pagans, naturalistic pagans. They don't believe in anything supernatural. Right, no, okay. no supernatural gods or goddesses, but they're doing rituals that are rooted yeah. in the pagan tradition. Yeah, so it comes down to like rituals that people do, and one of the one of the other things to mention in a, in a context here is a lot of this comes down. If you don't have gods or goddesses, right, you have gods outside you, and they, then you can think of praying to them because it's like you're asking somebody to do you a favor, or you're asking, or you're telling them thank you for doing me a favor. And if you don't have if you don't have that, then you have these sort of imminent forces and imminent powers that are things you can't evoke or activate within yourself, which is a lot of what these rituals try to do. And they're based on more the psychology and cognitive science of arousal, right? And so you go into things like a hyper arousal trance. One of, the, one of the interesting things about that is like, you know, ravers, the old, old school kind of classical rave culture, a lot of it was very heavily spiritualized and religionized, right? With yeah. altar, altars and circles and opening rituals. And well, you know who I'm thinking about right now? Who? Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley's out there, but he was a little bit before uh, electronic dance movement. <laughs> Dance music, but a lot of a lot of his uh, uh, law of Telema and uh, the Ordo Templar Orentis, that was all about um, these arousal states. Right. He would explicitly contrast what they were trying to do with uh, Buddhist meditation, and right? Yoga more generally, which was about turning things down. And, right. You know, he saw a place for that, but he also was interested. He saw magic as kind of like the the yang to the yin or whatever. Uh, magic was all about like ramping it up, right? 
Yeah, that's what's interesting from the cognitive point of view there is a lot of these religious, uh, you know, some people call them spiritual technologies, right? And they tend to be focused on arousal, stuff about like, you know, limbic system or the default mode network. And there tend to be two ways, like you said, that people think about them. One is the meditative, which is to go into kind of hypnotic uh, trances or, you know, these uh, hypoarousal trances where you're turning down. Yeah, you're yeah. turning down certain networks. You're turning down the default mode network, uh, turning down various kinds of arousal in the, you know, the autonomic nervous system. And that seems to have certain kinds of emotional and other cognitive effects, right? Uh, and the other side of that coin, like you said, is the hyperarousal trances. Right. You go to the rave and you're dancing to this electronic dance music, which is very high, high, high beats, right? Right. As everybody knows, but if you don't think about the effects, the neural law, people have written about, there's a good book by Robin Sylvan uh, called Transformation. He's written a bit about the neurology, right? There's a couple of other really good books about the neurological effects of these hyperarousal trances. And they, they produce these cognitive and emotional effects, right? People become ecstatic. And it lasts, right? It lasts for, you know, can last for months. They're like, ah, oh, my life is so much better. I used to be depressed. I used to, you know, I couldn't do anything. Now I'm filled with energy. You know, and all these metaphors of energy and light, and, you know, and then these ethical virtues become clearer to them. You know, peace, unity, love, and respect. You know, yeah. they're like, ah, oh, we're all one, and I love you, man. I was going to do bad things, but now I see we're all one. Right on. Yeah. And it, and the surprising thing is this stuff, you know, works, right? It's got all this, like, hippy-dippy kind of interpretation, or even, like, Crowley had this kind of, you know, pseudo-scientific interpretation of what was going on. But if you strip right. all that away, you're like, oh, this had, like, people done with Buddhism, right? They said, like, well, okay, let's forget about the stuff from 20 centuries ago and see what this is actually doing to brains. Right. Uh... And that's a really that's a really interesting way of taking religious or spiritual activities and kind of naturalizing them, right? Thinking of these things as naturalistic, and the, thinking of the supernaturalism as really kind of pre-theoretical or pre-scientific ways of understanding brain stuff. And you can say, yeah, wow, hyperarousal trances produce neural changes, and that can be long-lasting. That can lead to all kinds of virtues and virtuous character change. Uh, they can change, have effects on positive effects on depression, right? They and uh, some kinds of neurosis and psychosis. It's really so. That's stuff I'm really interested in. You know, what what happens in those contexts? Yeah. One thing I'm I'm curious about is to what kind of function does the the supernatural belief have? I, I mean, I presume that the beliefs are false, but you might wonder whether there's some kind of special effect you can only get if you um, if if you believe certain the, these certain things. You, you know, maybe there's some there's something uh, that you would be missing out on if you just try to do this while thinking of it as merely neural. It's merely uh, a, a a technique for messing around with your brain. That's that's interesting. I'm gonna hold up my mug coffee cup here too, which is the Spiritual Naturalist Society, which is another one of these very interesting groups. Um, right. 
does the are the are those beliefs essential? Those supernatural beliefs, like, is there some part of the brain that's required to be activated by those? And yeah, I think those beliefs are all false too. Uh, but is it necessary to activate that little brain node? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so at all. Um, there's a metaphor I wonder about. You know, um, there there's a lot of instances in uh, performance, both athletic and musical, where you get a beneficial effect from a false belief. And it's interesting that um, it's not full-blown self-deception, but there's a stu still this weird thing going on where you don't fully believe it. You know it's a false belief. So, for example, in martial arts uh, or in um, uh, self-defense, you're instructed when throwing a punch or throwing a kick to aim for a point beyond the target. All right. You're supposed to imagine punching through it or in um, in like baseball or, or tennis, uh, if you're hit if you're hitting a baseball or if you're pitching a baseball, there's a something called follow through. Right. And it's often right. described as like even though you know you've let go of the ball, keep on throwing it. And yeah. there's a there's a level in which you know you know this is false. Right. <laughs> you know this belief is false, but hey, where'd my ball go? <laughs> It's yeah, it's like it's pretense. Whatever pretense is is probably kind of a complicated thing. Um, but it's it seems like it, you've got examples of useful uh, false beliefs here in in um, in voice in in singing. People are instructed to do things like sing from the top of their head or breathe through their soles of their feet and yeah, your eyelids, dude. And so I wonder, you know, like if if like believing in gods and goddesses like has a similar kind of effect. Maybe it's not a, it's not necessary that you do it, but you do get an enhanced uh, push. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. I actually think that that's generally been a particular in our culture since it's been so Abrahamized, so Christianized um, that you know th that's the kind of thing people just reach for. Yeah, because uh, it's there on the shelf. But if you look at a lot of these other practices, what people are doing, I mean, for instance, if you look at, and I've been reading these books on on the sort of classical rave culture and the religiosity of rave, and there's a lot of reference to energy, right? There's a lot of talk about energy. There's a universal energy, the cosmic energy that's flowing through all of us, flows to the trees and the rocks, you know, the sun, and it's not personalized. So right. there's no, there's occasionally, uh, very rarely, you know, I've read several books now and I used, I count the, anytime somebody mentions either a spirit or God and through several books now I've seen like God mentioned like three times and, and, and not even by the interviews say with ravers, you know, um, or spirits mentioned once or twice. And, but the energy, everybody talks about the energy. And the energy is just like this stuff that you can tap into or arouse in yourself. Yeah. Now you might say that's you might say on the one hand that's false because what they say about the energy being like cosmic and everything. And it might, but eh, maybe that's true. Maybe there's some physical thing or or I mean, I'm thinking about your thing about throwing the ball and throw, th keep throwing it like beyond after you've let it go. Right. I mean, in one sense, that's kind of false, but in another sense, that's like, no, you are, you are, that's really an instruction to continue along a certain arc, right, with your, with your um, hand or your arm with a ball that's really kind of now become just an, an imaginary history of the ball. I mean, sort of geometrically, it's there, 
right? Like there's yeah. still kind of a geometrical sphere shape in your hand or something, with still with a trajectory. Yeah. Physical ball has left. So there are good natural or physical generalizations of various concepts, concepts or experiences. And I think a lot of that can be at work in these other religious uh, or spiritual contexts. And I think, you know, if you can, sometimes you can look at what some of the Wiccans are doing, for instance, and see like, oh yeah, there's this supernaturalistic language, but that's not what they're doing. Um, and it doesn't require that interpretation. And the interpretation is false when they interpret it that way. But if you look at the rituals, what the rituals are doing, um, and in a lot of these contexts, let me point out too, that people say things like, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't yeah. matter what you believe. All right? You d just do the ritual and you'll feel the thing. Right? You'll have the feeling. Yeah. See. You'll see what we're, you know. And they won't talk about, um, you know, I go to all kinds of rituals of all kinds of things. Yeah. Nobody talks about what you're supposed to believe. Interesting. In fact, because that's, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people who do this kind of stuff are, you know, recovering Christians or, uh, you know, escaped from Christianity where belief, especially Protestantism, right, where belief is so central. And right. they don't want to be told what to believe. They don't want to hear about belief. Who are you to tell me what to believe? So nobody talks about belief. So we are at a brink point. We need to pause so that the editor... The great editor in the sky can insert a breakpoint. Okay. so far yeah really cool good yeah, this is good man just keep asking whatever I mean okay that's are, good are you back from the break I'm back from the break welcome back from the break everybody that was a pretty good break that was a great break so I wanted to push in a slightly different direction but still kind of in the in the general um, topic of belief and um, one thing I'm curious about is what the maybe not belief you, you know but um, Something in the ballpark that you might call cognition uh, or a species of cognition. There's a, a, a certain kind of thinking that you do, especially if you are someone who writes books. Oh, God. Especially someone who writes books that in some sense are about ultimate things. Yeah. There's a, there's a kind of thinking that you do. And I wonder about, um, of course, the usual stuff. Like, is that thinking true or getting us at the truth? But I'm also... I also wonder a lot about what the um, what the effects of that thinking are. Like, you know, are there certain ways of thinking that give you happy squirts in your brain? 
<sighs> is there a certain kind of thinking that when it's like really abstract or when it takes on like really ultimate topics, it, it has what you might uh, call a spiritual effect? Um, so I, I don't know if you if you wonder about those sorts of things, if you wonder about like what the role that metaphysical or mathematical thinking takes as part of your um, rituals or, yeah. or your, your religious life. Yeah, the uh, that's a, those are really fascinating questions. I mean, you think about uh, people think about today in the West, you know, the sort of Westernized Buddhism. You think of meditation in those kinds of contexts, but people have pointed out that um, there's a long kind of meditative or contemplative tradition in the West, it goes all the way back, of course, through medieval Christianity, but all the way back to the Stoics. Um, and Neoplatonists, and these guys had meditative practices and meditative techniques. And so, how does that how does that get into the modern kind of like? Okay, I'm not doing Stoic or Buddhist meditation when I when I write or when I um, think that stuff through. But certainly, yeah, certainly doing. And people have written about it. You know, mathematical cognition can get you into these weird brain states. And yeah, they make happy squirts in your brain. Sometimes they make very painful squirts in your brain, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, people, you know, people yeah. have certainly written about how, you know, and there's been some thought about the neurology behind it. Um, you know, how, how, you know, kind of bipolar disorders or manic depressive kinds of, or cyclical kinds of things, right? Sometimes with, uh, Maybe maybe there are some neurotransmitters behind it. Maybe norepinephrine or something, right? Where you have this convergent and divergent thinking, and so you can get really, or at least I can get really depressed about like everything. But it's really about something I'm thinking about, and then there's the breakthrough, and then I'm really happy, and I write it all down, and I'm in a trance. And it is like a hyper-arousal trance. It's like, wow, you know, it's all, it's the flow state. Everything is going. Yeah. And that ties in. It's not, I don't know that anybody's really, and this is just probably my ignorance, I don't know that anybody's really talked about ways that ties into older Western meditative or contemplative traditions and practices. I mean, Descartes, I think there was a, somebody who argued, and I don't remember, that, you know, Descartes' meditations were actually, everybody's like, oh, yeah, meditations, that's this cool title. You know, that that actually was, he actually intended for those to be practiced in a certain kind of medieval meditative context. Cool. You're, you're supposed to read those, because it's, there's like the six meditations, right? And these are the yeah. six days of creation. And you're supposed to read them on the weekdays, the seventh day you rest. You know, and, and you're supposed to do this as like whatever whatever order he had been educated in. I forget it was what was the Jesuits, right? At La Flesh. So. Yeah. Right. And there were these meditative, contemplative practices, right? Where you would you would take things and these texts or philosophical problems and reflect on them. And this was supposed to be, you know, do things to you. All right, you see some of that in Zen, you know, koans yeah. or stuff. But there was a Western tradition of that, and I think I think that's true. I think that stuff is there. I think it it has that kind of philosophical, metaphysical thinking, very abstract stuff, can have very interesting kind of effects on your brain. Um, I mean, it is the brain acting on itself in various ways, but 
can have interesting emotional and psychological effects. But I don't know that, that whatever there are people who've talked about bringing back that Western contemplative tradition, saying like, uh, there's a guy Pierre Hadot who has a thing about philosophical practice, right? Um, so I don't I don't know what to think about that. I mean, I think it's there. I think it's yeah. true. But I don't know the, any literature or backstory about that very well. So, yeah. Yeah, I wonder about it, but I don't know what to say about it yet. But I do find, you know, I read this thing um, about the relationship between um, kinds of abstract thinking or um, what you might call computational thinking. You know, just like like doing doing certain kinds of math puzzles in your head. Oh, yeah. Um, and the relationship to depression, and that there was an inverse relationship. And there was this experiment where they had, um, they had I, like college students and put them into two groups. And the one group, they had to play some video games that were very um, visuospatial oriented. I think they were like first person shooters. Twitch games. Yeah. And the other, the other group, they had to do like long division in their head. And uh, and then they had to do this. Uh, there's some kind of survey, which is, I think, like a depression survey or a cheerfulness survey. It was something yeah. that was supposed to probe you on your mood. Pony. And, and it turns out the people that were doing math in their head were more cheerful. Yeah. And uh, I have noticed in semesters where I teach logic, and uh, I'm doing a lot of like grading a lot of proofs and, and working through I'm, like doing a lot of proofs at home uh, or just working through them in class like that. I, I get a squirt, get a happy squirt in the brain. Yeah, I think that's I think that's interesting. I have found that particularly more when I was younger that although it's still still is the case, right, that uh, doing a lot of intense math really like uh, alleviates anxiety for me. You know, like, I'm stressed out. When I was, like, stressed out about a lot of stuff, I would, like, start doing math. Yeah. I'd be like, oh. And part of it, you can you can philosophically mumbo-jumbo, right? You can say, like, oh, go Plato, you know, like, wow, I'm looking at the forms, and they're so beautiful. They're so perfect. They're so right. – and even if I get, you know, ground up into hamburger, you know, the forms are still going to be there, shining and beautiful. And so there's, and, and in part that's true, because you do this stuff and you're like, oh my God, this is beautiful. Right. And that gets you high. That gets me high anyway. I'm like, this is, this is beautiful. And I feel really good about that. And I'm like, my life sucks, but this is, but there's beauty. And beauty has a calming, some kind of soothing effect. Yeah. So, somebody must have, you know, I don't know what the, philo I think religious naturalists, uh, you know, I'm tempted to say religious naturalism is sometimes a religion of beauty. Like you're supposed to look at the beauty of nature, and that's supposed to comfort you. Right. Um, while you're getting your legs sawed off or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's some certain cuts of the leg that are quite lovely. Yeah, yeah. Like the, uh, yeah, the Bonak-Tarski paradox. We can chop up your leg in such a way that it can make two legs. Yeah. Same size. Yeah, yeah it's, it's actually very beautiful. Um, so you used the word in, in part one of our conversation, or you you uh, you kind of used it. You said something about saving, and I think you were oh, yeah. talking about salvation. Yeah, yeah. What what is what is salvation in your 
in your Steinhardian framework, what is salvation? Well, I would try not to have a particular Steinhardian interpretation of that word. It's a common word. You know, and salvation could be a lot of things, and there again, it's probably a by-cases kind of thing. I mean, obviously, Christians think of salvation as kind of like eternal life with, with God in heaven or the beatific vision of God or uh, friendship with Jesus or something. And But salvation, you know, you can think of Buddhists like, oh, nirvana or something, a cessation of, you know, this desiring, right, craving craving for the unattainable or the monkey mind being, you know, shut down or something, enlightenment. And there are other ways to think about about what is what is saving. Right? Yeah. It just saving could just be alleviating, you know, alleviation of suffering. Right? This is one of the goals, for instance, of Buddhist uh, Buddhist practice. Right? And and both and all kinds of religionists will tell you, well, do these things and it will help alleviate your suffering. Right, and maybe the suffering goes all the way out to like the suffering of losing your life permanently, so you can be saved from death, but you can certainly be saved from you know, poverty, from sickness, from despair, depression, from illness, from uh, and ultimately for, from permanent extinction, from death. So yeah, salvation is a really broad concept, and it doesn't have to be supernatural. For instance, right, you read these people who say. Yeah, if you meditate, you do Stoic or Buddhist meditation, you'll stop being anxious and you'll stop craving, you'll stop desiring, the ceaseless chatter of the mind is gone and you will be in this mindful state, right, this uh, state free from all these negativities and that's a kind of salvation. You won't even fear death anymore. Your anxiety will be gone. You have this yeah. clarity. Right, and that, that that's achievable through non-supernatural. There's nothing supernatural about it, um, and and a lot of the uh, you know these kinds of things about arousing this you know energy in yourself through hyperarousal trances and things like that. It's very similar, right? You, I'm anxious, I'm afraid, I'm going to die, I'm, gonna, I'm sick, what am I going to get money? Right? And you you go to the dance, the rave, or the shaman, or whatever, and you do these things. And you're no longer you're no longer uh, anxious. I'm anxious about my earbud. Maybe if I were enlightened. So uh, be the earbud. I'm trying to be the earbud. I'm trying to push it into my brain, but the sets get in the way. So uh, yeah, salvation from just these you know sort of structural defects of human life or cognition, and it's a broad concept, and it's really it's really like, Bring up another thing you know I've talked about here, right? Which is which is drugs, right? Entheogens, right? Psilocybin and uh, ayahuasca and uh, LSD and mescaline and stuff like that, uh, and, and ecstasy, MDMA. Um, the stuff that people have done recently, right, with the psilocybin research, where they you know you have people are dying of cancer, you know they're terminally ill, and psychologically they're a wreck, right? There are the, all these studies being done now. Um, Johns Hopkins studies and things like that, and in these very pretty carefully controlled uh, contexts, right? There they take psilocybin. Yeah. You know, and so they have a, you know, a psilocybin experience. Uh, this is far from far from you know Timothy Leary in the hippie days, right? This is this is pretty well, 
and certainly monitored, studied, you know, they're in the care of a couple of psychologists or psychiatrists while they take this drug, they're in a very uh, specific setting, you know, they've been prepared for it emotionally and mentally, but they take the psilocybin and no one's exactly sure yet, I think, what it does to the brain, but they come out of it and for months, sometimes years, certainly until they die, suddenly it's like they've achieved enlightenment relative to like, yeah, I understand, I know I'm going to die. You know, they're filled with like peace and love and radiance and joy, you know, and it, it doesn't seem fake, you know, because they're like going to die. Yeah. You know, and they're in the hospital, they're dying, and, and, it's, and to everyone else it looks horrible, but they're happy and they're comforting other people. People are like, you're going to die, I love you. And they're like, don't worry, you know, man, it's, it's... And, and they just have this radiance of joy and happiness. And they report it themselves, right? And they've been transformed. And sometimes people give, like, uh, in the ayahuasca stuff, they give a supernaturalist interpretation to that. Oh, these spirits have comforted me. Right. Mostly with things like psilocybin, um, it, it, they don't give that interpretation, right? It's just the world has been transformed for them. They see it clearly now, right? They used, there are all these, and it's often spoken of using these metaphors of cleansing and, and, and clarity, you know? Like they had all this glop in their brain that was getting in the way, all this negative, or again, negative energy, you know? Oh, there are all these negative energies. And I'm, I'm cleansed now, right? And I'm purified, it's purgative. So that's that's another side of the of the brain thing going on here with the with the religion stuff, and it doesn't have to involve the supernatural, right? It's very interesting stuff. There you go. So uh, one kind of salvation is uh, a kind that certain transhumanists are pushing for, and that is salvation through uploading. Oh yeah, defeat death by backing up, back that thing up. Right. Yeah. Is that a waste? Should they, should they just uh, ha have peace with death, or is is that a worthwhile project? That's real. That's real interesting. You know, like uh, right, the kind of yeah. So uploading and that that strain of transhumanism, right? It's got this. They use use weird words, right? It's it's eschatological and it's millenarian, right? It's a hope for the future because we can't upload now. Right. And I'm I'm almost certainly going to die before I could get you know turn you know put in a box, a uh, computer box uh, uploaded. So there's there's a millenarian hope there for the for the future, and it's very that stuff strikes me as very heavily Christianized, right? Or coming out of a Christian tradition of like the Savior is going to come, and it's going to be instead of it'll be Jesus, but Jesus will be a big hey, you know Jesus is a big computer. Right, it's still Jesus, Matt. You know, it's like, uh, and I don't know that I'd say it's. It's yeah, I'm gonna say it's a waste of time. Conceptually, it's interesting. You know, think about think about the brain and having these kinds of informational structures, and and I do think it's it's possible, right? There's no reason why you couldn't scan the brain, and, and I mean, theoretically, hypothetically, in principle, give all those qualifiers, right? All those hedges. But as a practical means to, uh, you know, eliminating the threat of death, I I think that's sort of silly, and I don't, and I think it could only function within a highly Christianized culture, right? Where instead of like uh, say like, oh, I'm a transhumanist, I I don't bow down to your silly Jesus, 
that's all supernatural, you know, bullshit. I bow down to the great computer, which is just as mythological. But I mean, I, I of course, uh, you know, there's a lot of different angles on this. But one angle I imagine has to be people thinking about existential risk, people thinking about the long-term future of the human race, right? And that. Um, if you care about that sort of thing, you might think that we we would be better with a much more resilient substrate, a substrate that would that would be easier to colonize space with, a substrate that would be a lot less vulnerable to things like a, an asteroid hit or uh, you know running out of sunlight. <laughs> right, losing. Uh... Yeah. Okay. I I can see that point, but that's again an, an eschatological point, right? That's a point about the deep future. And if there's a thought, I mean, where it could get interesting, and I've certainly written a, a lot about this, um, where it could get interesting is if you say, uh, and I'm going to say the magic words here, like Roko's Basilisk, right? I mean, where? Uh -oh. Yeah. Are you helping? I'm or helping. Are you hurting? I'm helping. Okay. Hey. Computers of the future, I love you. Eric is helping. I love you, and I'm helping. Pete's I'm helping too. Pete's helping too. We're both help we're we're using a computer right now. <laughs> Good computer. Good computer. Let me pet my computer. Good, nice computer. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think that that this stuff really is, if you try to make an eschatological argument, people have done this. That the futures, all the possible futures of Earth, are going to converge. To the soup, to the singularity, right? The supercomputer is gonna, it will appear, and through some sort of quantum jujitsu, it's gonna know the past, right? And even though I'm dead and my ashes are scattered on the Appalachian Trail in Vermont on Griggs Mountain, yeah. Oh, uh, okay, that's the plan. That's the plan. Yeah. All right. There's a place called the Sacred Meadow on Griggs Mountain. That's where I want to be. All right. And the. Uh, the great computer will know, and it'll be able to reconstruct me, right, and my life. And that's a little different than uploading, right, where you're supposed to get your brain scanned. That's a kind of ancestor simulation, right, ancestor resurrection. Um, so if you think that's really going to happen, or you, or you have arguments that that's going to happen, I, and actually I think the arguments that that's going to happen are probably stronger than the arguments that I'm ever going to get my brain scanned. Uh, and upload it in that way, um, then you might. Then that really does become kind of a religious faith, and that that's intriguing. I mean, I don't I don't think it's true. Uh, I I think the arguments can have some plausibility. I don't think they're they're correct. Um, I don't think they're convincing. But that's the kind of becomes a kind of interesting religious faith right there. Yeah, so that's a little beyond uploading. That is about the existential risks, right, going way out into the future and saying, like, well, uh, we all got to work to make the singularity happen. And uh, because in, in the ultimate long term, that's the only way that, that you know, information can be, I mean, salva you know, recovery of all your past information is a kind of salvation. Right. right. I mean, so you can be saved from all these things by this kind of being resurrected in the simulation and maybe like Nick Bostrom argues, you know, he doesn't quite argue this, but maybe you're already in the simulation. Right? Um, uh oh. In which case... I keep forgetting about that. Shit. Yeah, don't... Okay. Don't forget about that. 
So I haven't seen a glitch in the matrix in a while. And so I just kind of have let it all slip a bit. There's one in the office. I'll show it to you next week. It's just like a, it's over in the corner. There's a hole with a half a cat sticking out <laughs> yeah, of it. It's worse than that. Just hang a hat on it. Right. <laughs> There's a tentacle. Uh, don't move that hat, Pete. Right. Right. So, um, but it, I don't, you know, there are people who take that stuff seriously, and they're out in like Silicon Valley, or they're they're all around, right? The less wrong crowd, you know, and and some of them do rituals, right? The big solstice ritual, winter solstice rituals they do. I've gone to them um, here in New York, uh, right? Ray Arnold throws a big winter solstice thing, and it's all these less wrongians, and. Oh, the Synthiest group I was mentioning in, in uh, Scandinavia a while ago. Did I talk? We talked about them at the start. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. You know, they're they're kind of a, a transhumanist group too, and uh, they're they're doing all kinds of stuff. So there are people who take this seriously in a religious way, um, and are engaged in constructing these kinds of transhumanist singularitarian religions. People are doing stuff. So, um, yeah, I want. I wonder how your stuff fits in because don't you, don't you think we're we're like gonna be alive forever in some sense? Yeah, like alive in some sense of forever. Yes, yes, and yes. And it's got something to do with computers. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which you are already a scan, right? I I'm already a piece of software running on a divine substrate. Yeah, I mean, in the in the uh, the big metaphysics of of you know that I've developed and argued for right in my in my book and various articles right, um, and I don't think that that maybe sounds sounds maybe it sounds maybe it doesn't sound crazy. I'm always surprised people think it's less and less crazy. Um, so we take a basic computationalist approach to physics. Okay, there's a big computer. I'm a piece of software running on it, and it gets back to the kind of Pythagoreanism to the mathematics, right? I mean, uh, what's reality ultimately? It's a whole bunch of recursive functions. And so there's just big computer loops. And the program the program that's running right here, this not just in my head, but in my whole body uh, and our whole universe, right? These programs are, they can be upgraded. They can be run on, certainly on more powerful computers, more powerful substrates. They can be improved, enhanced, uh, extended, optimized, idealized in all kinds of ways. And this seems to me to be a kind of natural outcome of the mathematics. I mean, it would seem to me to be weird to look at this, a sequence of computations and, uh, or it would seem to be arbitrary to say, oh, there are all these computations running, and at some arbitrary step, they stop. And that's it. I mean, that's something that's actually, you know, people think, oh, something like life after death is like requires all these complex arguments and is very hard to explain. It strikes me what's hard to explain is the computation just halting. Right. Um, you know, because the math doesn't halt. Right. Right, it's like if you say Eric Steinhardt is a certain uh, program, let's just say a certain Turing machine or a certain Turing computation. There's all kinds of completely uh, rigorous mathematical ways to talk about that computation being extended into the transfinite, uh, or being saying that that program gets run again, 
Um, and it seems much more probable, if we were just to say probability, and just to sort of quantify over the possible histories or possible, well, possible worlds, if you like, but possible histories of just this universe, or the possible histories of various computations, right? The ones in which the thing just stops become a vanishingly small subset because in almost, in almost every, and by almost every, I mean every except for, you know, this is math, every except for a set of measure zero, they go on. And even if they were to halt, right, you'd have to say, well, what's the explanation for the halting? Is there some other structure, right? I mean, and is there a principle of sufficient reason behind this? You know, like Leibniz had. In fact, just, you know, just, I'm just going to, can we just turn this off and we'll just hold up a Leibniz book? <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, right? Because Leibniz, I'm looking, uh, looking for some Leibniz, you know? Oh, man. Yeah, just, yeah. Oh, my God. That's not safe for work. <laughs> Ah, it took a dark turn. I mean, Leibniz, I think, had this vision, right, where, you know, the monad is a, is a kind of primitive computational unit. And computations really don't stop. You know, if, if you ever say, well, it halts, there's always, uh, the halting is always within a larger context, which is a larger and deeper computation. Or... Well, I'm losing a little track of what you're saying here. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're presuming the the general set theoretic Pythagoreanism, right? Well, we're presuming a kind of pan computationalism. And Everything's so it's a computation. Whether something is it has halted or continued, that's going to be that's going to be relative to time, which itself is just a, a a part of this. Like time is not at the bottom level. Time is just one of the coordinates that you would build after you build numbers and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right? Right. So um, th at the most fundamental level, things are timeless. They don't, not in the sense that they go on forever, but in the sense that they're more fundamental than time. Uh, yeah, I would say that any physical order like time is, right, not fundamental, but there is a, there's a linear order. I mean, in computation, you have a linear sequence of steps, right, a well-ordered sequence of steps. And so, ultimately, at the bottom, there's a well-ordered. There are well-ordered sequences, right? So you just take the number line, just the ordinal number line, zero, one, two, three, four, five. That gets extended into the transfinite, right? So um, through all the LFs and, and numbers like that. So you yeah. have a, a transfinite number line. Any state of a computer is just a number on that line. And a computation is just a function which iterates on that line. Okay, 2 gets mapped onto 4, 4 gets mapped onto 8, 8 gets mapped onto 16, 16 to 32, that eventually goes into the infinite. And it keeps going. So obviously this is a pretty trivial way of explaining it. So if you're looking at functions that iterate on the number line, and every iteration is analogous to a time step, right? I say it's analogous because this is going to be deeper than any kind of physical time. Okay. And, and our universe, right, if you had something like the game of life or cellular automaton, right, you can see, well, a cellular automaton is just an iteration of a function from numbers to numbers, right? Any state of the cellular automaton is just a number on the ordinal number line, and the next state is just the next number. 
and whatever the causality function is, the ultimate natural law of the cellular automaton, it's just a map from numbers to numbers. And so it just says, okay, 2, 4, 6, 8, you know, 16, 32, etc. Or, you know, 1, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, you know, 17, iterate through the primes, right? You have all these fun you have all these functions. All right. And so you have functions that just, you know, if somebody were to say that I'm a computation and I just die. I just stop. That seems to me to be saying that whatever computation I am, whatever sequence of numbers I am, or whatever function that I've been implementing, right, my body, my brain, whatever, whatever function I've been implementing has a last member. Yeah. And mathematically that claim seems to be absurd, right, because of course that function can be extended. So why isn't it extended? Is there a, a deeper reason? So it seems to me, and these are these arguments, yeah, I'm probably getting too mathematical and too abstract, but these kinds of arguments are not original to me, for sure. Okay. Right? I mean, if you look, you know, one guy who made them uh, that is Hans Moravec, right? Particularly in his uh, 2000 book, right, uh, uh, Robot from Mere Machine to Transcendent Mind. Yeah. The last couple of chapters. Uh, he's got, you know, this, this thing called mind fire, right, where he's got this, this the vision I'm telling you about is basically described in his, in his book. And reality is ultimately just these functions mapping numbers onto numbers. And they don't ever end, right? And you think it ends, but the map just gets extended in a way. I'll mention one other guy. Can I mention another guy? Yeah, and then we have to take a break. Then we'll take a break, right? It'll be a good thing to take a break on. A guy who's forgotten, and it's, I, I'm real sad that he's forgotten, and I, and I shed a little tear, is Josiah Royce, right? Who, you know, 115 years ago, right, worked out this metaphysics, all right? That reality is ultimately a system of functions from the ordinal numbers to the ordinal numbers. And he he and I've written about this. I had a paper in the uh, uh, Transactions of the Charles uh, Sanders Peirce Society, right? Royce's Royce's uh, mathematical model of the absolute. So people have worked this stuff out before, and and it, and I love it. Right. So let's take a break, and then I want to after the break pick up on this because this is really interesting. All right. Woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil sends the beast with wrath, because he knows the time is short. Let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. Its number is 666.
Welcome back from the break, everybody. That was a long break. There is a world in which we actually took a break. Yes. And maybe it's this world. Could be. Um, so I think I don't have an objection. I just want to get clear on some terminology and maybe, uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding what you're saying. So uh, th there are some things that halt or stop. You'll, you'll grant that, right? No. Everything is? <laughs> yeah, I'm not granting that. So that um, there is an uh, whether a function is halts is is just hypothetical, and you're saying it's never actualized; it always continues. Uh, worse, I'm saying that yeah, well, yeah, it always continues. It's an halting is an illusion. Nothing halts. Nothing halts. There isn't any. There aren't any functions that don't have extensions, right? That's that's what infinity gives you. Right. Oh, every well, okay. So every function has a, an infinite extension, but there yeah. still might be. We we still might talk about unextended things, right? There still might be things that are the unextended portions. Well, there's always unextended portions of those functions, right? Okay, for, for sure. But that's that's like saying you already died when you were two years old or something because you didn't make it. The two-year-old ended before he turned three. And, you know, that's, so that would be exactly it, right? So there are states, and this again is kind of Leibnizian, right, where, okay. you know, the monad thinks it's died. Okay. It's, it's shed its body, right? Um, but that is simply a phenomenal experience in which the, uh, right, is going to be, a, there's going to be a subsequent shift, right, to... I mean, this is Leibniz. This is not exactly me, but because yeah. I don't like the term of of uh, embodiment or stuff like that, because I uh, I think my you know I don't have that that kind of dualism that he had. So, yeah. um, but he he thinks right that the monad appears to itself to have to have lost its body and thus to have died, and then it enters a kind of sleep. It's a kind of reincarnation, right? Or it's not reincarnation because actually bodies are generated by minds in Leibniz's view. So then the monad begins to appear to itself to have a body and to be occupying a phys another physical world, right? And uh, so everything is simulated in, in Leibniz. But uh, something analogous to that, right, that my body and my universe are computations that are embedded in a larger computation. So let, focusing specifically on Leibniz, who uh, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page right now. He was born in 1646 and uh, allegedly died in 1716. Okay. Um, allegedly? Well, I mean, <laughs> he walks among us. I'm not sure what you're saying. Ah, uh -huh, you know what I'm uh, saying. Zombie Leibniz is right behind oh, me. I, I am Leibniz. The monads are coming from inside <laughs> right. the house. The monads are here. So there's this finite thing. There's this finite four-dimensional thing, and right? It, and it was born or started in 1646. Yeah, and it terminates at 1716, and we might call that the the life of Leibniz. And you're saying there's an infinite thing, which that that thing is related to, and that is the 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 immortal continuation of Leibniz. Or yeah, for for that's what Leibniz said. I mean, you you well, I want to know what you say. Um, so you, you grant that there's a sense in which Leibniz did die and they probably are reporting correctly that he died in 
1716. What's this infinite thing that this finite thing is related to, and what's the relation? That's yeah, my question. okay. Right, right. Good question. So, right. So let me, do let me mention the Leibniz himself. I mean, Leibniz thought he was a monad, right? And that monads generate phenomenal experiences within themselves, such as the experience of having a body, being in a room, being in a universe, things like that. And that's all generated out of the monad's own nature somehow. Okay. And monads are, are computations. They're tempor you know, temporally extended computations, really just kind of a sequence of real numbers, things like that. So let's let's get be inspired by that, or, or I'm inspired by it. But I don't I don't buy into his you know uh, metaphysics of the monads in quite that way. The idea is like people like Royce or like Moravec, right? You say, well, okay, there are these you know I'm a computation, Eric Steinhardt. My body is a computation. It's a physical computation. It's running inside a larger computation, which is our universe. And our universe, so my body is a four-dimensional, right? It's a four-dimensional substructure of, right, an n-dimensional uh, structure, which is our universe, which is being computed. And so you've got computations nested within computations. Eventually, you get down to a bottom-level computation, right? And that bottom-level computation um, is transfinite. That bottom-level computation runs along the entire ordinal number line. It contains computations nested inside it, right? Which, um, to themselves, appear to be finite. So I'm going to die, which means yes, this computation that is my brain and my body um, will come to an end, right? But that computation is not the entirety of the computation I'm in. After all, the universe is going to continue, and the molecules and the atoms in my body are going to continue. Right. Right. All those little computations are going to continue. So, okay. All right. The idea behind this is that structures are, patterns or structures are conserved in a certain way, and they're amplified and enhanced in a certain way. The computation that I'm in, so you take our universe, let's put it that way. You take our universe, certainly there, you could have a simple computation which just says, uh, an eternal recurrence, right? I'm running the I'm the big computer. I run the universe. When it's done, heat death, I start it up again. And I run it again. It's just a loop, right? You know, for i equals 0 to infinity do run universe, right? And right. that could be a computation in which our universe is embedded. Uh, probably not, right? You would have a lot of questions to ask about why why that. Okay. But if you take ideas from complexity theory, and the guy who inspires me here is Dawkins, right? And Dawkins says, well, everything that's complex has to depend on something simpler. And we work that backwards in a kind of cosmological argument. We go back, 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 back to simplicity. And you say, well, what are the, what are the most plausible or most probable computation that's creating something like our universe, a complex structured thing like our universe? And you say, like, well, that's a computation which, in which complexity increases. It evolves, right? There's evolution. And so how do you have increasing complexity? Well, the way you get increasing complexity is by taking simple things and putting them together, right? So what's the, uh, what's the uh, where'd our universe come from? It came from a smaller, simpler universe. Where'd that come from? A simpler universe, a simpler one back all the way to the simplest beginning. Let's run that progress, right? So the idea is that's a computation. Let's run it forwards. We start with simplicity. And there's some algorithm 
that says, okay, you take this thing, make it more complex, and now run that thing, right? And after you're done running that, make it more complex and run that thing. And you have an iteration, right? Now all these things, right, are just are just mathematical structures. They're just, you know, they're just numbers, if you want to put it that way, or sequences of numbers. And so you say, okay, take that sequence of numbers, make it more complex, run it. And we have this lineage of increasingly complex computations, which, and that lineage is itself a computation. Uh, another guy who writes about this is your, a computer scientist, Jürgen Schmidhuber, who's got this theory of pan-computationalism. Right? This is pan-computationalism. Everything's a computation. Things we ordinarily look at, coffee cups, you know, coffee cups or human beings, are computations that are nested in, in computations, nested in computations, nested in computations. And eventually we get to bottom-level computations, and the bottom-level computations are uh, almost mathematically necessary, or, or let me put it this way, it's almost a mathematical necessity that the bottom-level computations are computations that uh, steadily and endlessly increase complexity. And, and there's a lot of arguments for that kind of stuff, and there's, there's no need to get technical about them. But if you take those arguments, you say, well, look at our universe, okay, it's going to be followed by a more complex universe, and the more complex universe is going to contain what? Well, the universe is a whole with parts. A more complex whole contains more complex versions of the parts, and some of those parts are four-dimensional things like human lives. So in the various extensions of our universe, there are going to be things like you and me, which are complexified. Uh, enhanced and amplified in various ways and so forth. So that's, I mean, that's the general gist of, of the computationalism. Got so it. So there's a, there's, a, there's a universe out there in which, uh, in that universe, Leibniz never dies. Uh, far in the future, there's a, yeah, in the next universe, Leibniz, when did he live to? 1716? Yeah, the next universe, he's going to live to 1717. Uh-huh. I mean that's that's trivial, but you know right. he's going to live longer. He's going to certainly be healthier. Uh, he's going to be uh, I don't know. I don't I don't like the word happier, but um, right various sexier. Oh, I think I think he's pretty sexy. He's already maximally sexy. That's not max. He's going to get sexy. Look, he's going to have a bigger wig. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. I, I saw uh, someone did a mock-up of a wigless oh God. Leibniz. I saw it on the oh internet. Oh, God. It's terrible. Don't look like on the internet. Don't ever go on the internet. People wonder about the wig, but if you have seen the wigless Leibniz, you would appreciate the wig. Yeah, I like the wig. Now, the idea is, yeah, I mean, so it becomes, I mean, this, this, this theory, with all the, after you subtract all the computational mumbo jumbo, um, you know the the theory resembles in many way a kind of Theravadic Buddhist theory of rebirth. All right now, the, the these old time you know the old time Buddhists described it in much more poetic and mythic language of like, well, there's our universe, and somehow in our universe the, the records of our lives are somehow maintained. You don't have to have any gods or anything to do this. They're just, you know, informational structures. And after our universe ends, right, the winds of karma blow. And 
the winds of karma, I mean, our universe ends in ashes, right? The, the material parts, the atoms and so forth are turned into chaos. And the winds of karma blow, and they blow the atoms together into a new universe. And based on these karmic laws, I mean, karma is algorithmic. Karma is computational. Based on these, you know, karmic laws, right, the karmic laws act on uh, the informational record of your past life, and they will produce a new Pete Mandic, right? And it's not that there's a soul that's reincarnated. Right. right? Buddhists don't believe in, or Theravadic Buddhists don't believe in uh, substantial souls. But rather, the law, this is just law of cause and effect, right? I mean, the causes you triggered in your past life are going to have effects in the next universe, in your next life. So, 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 so yeah. somewhere, 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 there will be the best possible Pete Mandic. No, no, no. What, what is it? Well, they get better and better, but there's no best. There's, oh, 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 oh. There ain't no biggest number, man. Don't give me I that. See. Don't bring me down, dude. Somewhere, somewhere, there's a, a way better Pete Mandic. Yeah, in the future. Yeah, and um, but there, uh, but but and and um, there's a bunch of them, maybe even an infinite number of them that are uh, in um, infinitely long. They inhabit infinitely uh, uh, infinite amounts of time. Yeah, sure. They live forever. They live in yep. universes that live forever. Well, I don't want to say forever, right? There are there's a, there's there's a Leibniz who has. Let's go back to him because we don't, I don't want to talk about you and me like you know dying and stuff. Uh, yeah, that's why I wanted to bring Leibniz into it. So there's a, a, a infinite there's an infinite Leibniz. How long did he live? When did he live? You six sixteen uh, sixty four? You said. So he started in sixteen forty six and ended in seventeen sixteen. So seventy years old. So 70 years old, so then, I mean, just to make it a little silly that there's a Leibniz in the next world that 70 lives to 71, and then 72, and 73, yeah. and then 147, and then 20 billion and 19, yeah. and if, if this iteration continues, there's eventually going to be a Leibniz that lives for Aleph not many years, Uh huh. right? And then, or, or to, and yeah. Are you going to say there's also Aleph 1? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. And okay. I, but I don't like. I don't know what forever means, right? Maybe that's nitpicky, but because Aleph not. I mean, in fact, there isn't a forever because any any number is bounded above by a larger cardinal, right? Yeah, I was just. Um, I was trying to get a vocabulary where we could talk about things that were in times, yeah. times that were. Well, that's that's fine. Infinite. And then there's you know there's a way of looking at the structure whereby there's just a whole bunch of stuff that is timeless. Well, I think, some people are yeah. going to say, like, oh, wow, uh, here's what I like about this set theoretic Pythagoreanism. I am, in some sense, a timeless thing. So, yay. I think that that's, that's both true and sort of useless. I mean, if you're a four-dimensionalist about, you don't need all this crazy metaphysics to do that. You can just be a four-dimensionalist or an Einsteinian, right, kind of eternalist and say, right. Oh, my past exists in the in the previous four-dimensional, you know, solid. That's right. Yeah. So I I just wanted to get clear on the kind of immortality that uh, some of these Leibnizes have. Oh yeah, it's, it's a temporal right infinity. 
Well, the, yeah, the nice thing about this kind of thing is if you are this kind of a four-dimensionalist or better, right, you uh, take counterpart theory seriously, right? All, all there's, there's an infinite sequence of, of Leibniz lives. So live, let's say there's Leibniz life one that lasts a year, uh, one year long. Leibniz life two, the next life in the next universe, lasts two years. And Leibniz n lasts n years and lives in universe n. That's that's obviously pretty uh, pretty silly way of putting it, but right. And so there's going to be a Leibniz LF naught that lives LF naught many years in universe LF naught, and he's going to be surpassed by another Leibniz. Okay, so we have an infinite sequence of these Leibnizes, right? And all the stages of that sequence, if you line them all up, right, those are really all the uh, the stages of I don't know who we want to call them, you know, super Leibniz, right? He that that there's a computation, there's a single computation running across all those distinct lives, and so that that single computation is like the super Leibniz, right? And that lives, uh, if you want to say forever, okay, fine, because the length of that computation is the length of the entire ordinal number line, and that's a proper class, and that's absolutely infinite, so that's forever. Yeah. So we have less. We we're down to thirteen minutes left, and I want to try to ask okay. a, a question about ethics. And I hope. It oh God! What do I know about ethics? I hope it isn't just a dumbass question about free will. Okay. But the question uh, is something is. like. The question is something like, uh, given that there's a way better Pete Mandic. Yeah. Already. Right. Like, uh, why should I? This this one, this thing right here that you're talking to, why should I, you know, do anything? Like, why should I seek my own perfection? I'm trying to improve myself in certain ways. I, I you know, I'm trying I've to noticed. think. We've all noticed. Ways, ways to be a better dresser. Yeah, and, uh, you're doing a good job know, with that. We like that. A better office mate. Yeah. Like, I took out, I don't know if you noticed, I took out the fucking garbage last week, dude. <laughs> well, it was your garbage. <laughs> Who made the garbage? Yeah, but I mean. Oh, but you took it out. That's right. Okay, yes, yes, I, I did. So, I'm, you know, I'm trying to improve. Um, okay. So, but. Me too. Yeah, so, trying to, trying to be good. So, suppose I believe this. I believe in the, in these perfected uh, afterlives. Or, or what, yeah. what are these things? My counterparts? My perfected? Or more future, perfect counterparts. Your future lives, your future better lives. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, does that does that have any implications for the way I, I like act on on values and try to you know make tomorrow better than it was yesterday? Uh, yeah, there are a couple of things to say to that. The one is right that if you have sort of I and mean, there has to be a thing about prudential self concern, right? If you're concerned about your future. And you really think you are going to have these future better lives, right? Your your next life is going to depend on what you do in this life, right? I mean, it's based on what you do in this life. I mean, you get your life, your present life gets stuck into the optimizing algorithm, and that you know poops out your next life. So if you live a crappy life now, your next life isn't going to be that much better than than this one. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm like smoking and I get, I get cancer, I get lung cancer and I suffer and horribly die at 35 or something. Okay, well your next life's going to be better, but it would have been even better if you hadn't taken up smoking and gotten lung cancer. Uh -huh. Right? So your self-improvement has the opportunity to extend across multiple lives, right? 
So if you if you live a crappy life, you don't take care of your health, you don't you know you uh, act unethically, end up in prison or something, or you just bring about harm and suffering to yourself and others, right? I mean you're you're also in a world, right? You cause harm to others, you cause violence, conflict, fighting, and things like that, negative uh, negativities. Well, you're you know it's not just you. You don't get to define your own universe, right? I mean the universe is being optimized as a whole. And so you're going to live, you know, your future selves are going to live in a world which is based on, which has been created for them by their past selves. So you, you have an interest, right? You have an interest in being good. Right? You have an interest in living the best life that you can. Um, and I think that that's, that's going to be independent of whether or not there's something like, you know, liber libertarian free will, right? Okay. I mean, if it's all determined, if everything is deterministic, uh, which is certainly the view that I mean I'm a compatibilist. I think it's all determined. Everything yeah. determined, and and uh, determinism doesn't bother me. No, right? no, me neither. So, but but even either way, right? If I have libertarian free will, I ought to want to use it in the best way that I can. Whereas if I'm determined, I'm still going to say like, well, it comes out of my nature, and so I have the desire for my need. It's part of my nature. To have the desire to always optimize myself, and even if everything's whether or not you have libertarian free will, even if everything is deterministic, in a really hardcore sense, I still ought, right? Ought still apply. I still yeah. ought to improve myself as much as I can, right? And oughts still drive once because I ought to. Yeah. Right? I want to. So, so yeah, you, you ought to, you, you, uh, you ought to, you want to, and insofar as you can, you do make things better. But why do, um, right, like I said, I didn't want to uh, make this about free will. Uh -huh. more, more about, like, personal identity or something like that. Yeah, no, right. So why, Good. why should I care about these things that aren't in my universe? Why should you care? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, there'd be a, a, a counter-argument, right, a slippery slope thing of like, well, why or how you, can I care? Why should you care about walking out in front of a bus? Because, right, I mean, it's not going to be you who gets hit. It's going to be that guy five seconds from now. Uh, or one might say, yeah, look, that, that's psychology, right? There are obviously people who believe fully in personal identity and yet uh, drink themselves to death. Right or you know people who obviously don't care. Uh, identity and caring are the point here being that identity and caring are really separate things. Well, maybe identity is not the right uh, name for it, but th there is a relationship that I I assume, and so I will grant to you, there's a relationship between me and that guy five seconds in the future who may or may not get squashed by a bus, and yeah. uh, I presently am acting in such a way so that. There is no squashing, right? And you know so what? I, That's enough. So, but so I so what's the relationship between me and this this um, five seconds in the future thing? Well, such that yeah. the relation. Are you saying the the relation also holds to these digital afterlives? Uh, yeah, the relation, whatever, any relation that's sufficient to generate prudential care across your ordinary life right here on Earth. Yeah, that relation holds across all the stages of all you of your future lives. Yeah, 
I argue for that okay. right? in my book. I argue for that in a couple articles. Okay. But I'm I'm much see I'm very I have very little interest in that stuff. That's that's a Cartesian Lockean kind of way of approaching these problems. And the way I see it, right? If yeah, it, that's a uh, that's pretty harsh. Yeah. I would Cartesian Lockean. Yeah. Screw those guys. Motherfucker. I hate those guys. Or I hate the fact that, you know, 350 years later or whatever, people are still, like, you know, stuck in that mindset. I mean, if, I, if, if one were to take seriously the notion that you're a computation and you're a sequence of, like, you know, numbers iterating across the transfinite number line, you're going to say, like, look, what's interesting, what's interesting is the axiological properties of those functions, right? Because aughts... Yeah, and of course, I think aughts, you know, like Max Black, right? I think ought does does come from is, and it comes, it's going to ultimately come from the axiological sort of foundations of computation. And the sequences are unfolding, right? And because they're unfolding in the way they're unfolding, you ought to care. And as a matter of fact, you do care, right? Uh, and what's interesting is where does the caring come from? And the caring comes from... The ought, right? The obligations. Where do the obligations to the future come from? The obligations for, to the future come from the nature of the function that's iterating, right? I mean, these functions aren't um, just ones that are running around, wandering, brownian motion or something across the landscape of possible computations. At least on on the view that I argue for, right? Which is a kind of axiarchism. Um, and, and that goes back to the Leibniz as well, right? These, these functions exist precisely because they're optimizers, right? Um, random functions, random iterations, random computations, if they, ever, if they ever got started running, are just wandering through an unintelligible and unintelligent chaos, right? But the stuff that's doing stuff like me and you, these are optimizers, and they generate obligations, and they generate obligations relative to their own future optimization. The key word here, right, uh, is recursive self-improvement, right? That's a concept you get. That's a nice concept that some of these singularity people have given us, right? You know, the computer gets better and better at making itself better and better, right? The, the functions that persist, right, are the ones that do get better and better at making themselves better and better. And so, um, or the pers- I shouldn't have said they persist, they all persist, but they persist in any interesting way that are doing anything. So you care because that's, you're the kind of thing that does care. You're the kind of thing that cares because that comes out of your nature, and it comes out of the entire nature of the whole process which produced your universe and the evolution of life within your universe. Right? It's a very evolutionary, you know, evolutionary axiarchism. There you go. So we we're down to our last uh, like three minutes, and uh, I want to ask you about the the dark side. Oh, so um, of the moon. Well, like I can imagine, I can imagine an evil Eric, Uh-oh. a dark Eric, and he and uh, instead of telling me that everything's getting better and that you know we're just a whole bunch of self improving Leibniz computers, yeah. Uh, he's arguing for some uh, Pythagorean uh, ultra cosmic entropy, 
everything is getting worse oh, and your man. future counterparts are going to be worse than you. Oh, and it started off great. Yeah. But it's all winding down. Is there, is there such a person? Is, uh, is there anyone in metaphysics arguing for like the total inverse of everything you've been talking about the past hour and a half? Anti-Eric. Uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not aware of that. No. And I think it's because Certainly, for me and for others who have written about this, right, the Axiarchists, the concept of good and evil, right, it's a Neoplatonic concept, uh, where evil is a privation of the good, or evil results uh, from conflicts among the good. And so there's no such thing as, as evil, right? Evils are generated when goods come into conflict or when there's too much good for any one system. And so things getting worse and worse. I mean, what, happen, what happens when things get worse and worse? My life gets shorter, I get sicker, I die more quickly, and then it gets worse. There isn't any Eric anymore. And then it gets a little worse, and there aren't any animals anymore. There aren't, you know, the earth is sterile, and then it gets worse, and it's all just, I mean, worse and worse. Entropy, you know, entropy leads very quickly to um, just chaos, randomness, where there's no structure, order, intelligence, thinking, or anything. And so that's not going. What's going to run on then forever? There is just you know randomness. You know noise. Yeah. Noise on the TV screen. There's not going to be anyone there to reflect on the fact that it got worse, right? Wor worseness and entropy burns itself out very quickly. Would be the answer to that. So the the functions that keep going are the ones where it gets better and better, or the function. I, sh I shouldn't say that. The functions that keep going in a way that anyone notices, right? Because the functions where entropy just increases very quickly, there are no minds, there's no intelligence, there's no life, there's no structure, there's no order of any kind. Right. So there you go, Mr. Evil. <laughs> Yay. All right. Well, uh, I, that's all our time. I'm glad, okay. we, I'm glad we're not tending towards universal infinite evil. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, well, thanks for being on Space Time Mind. Okay. I'm okay. aiming to get this thing on the air by April 15th. Oh, all right. Uh, I'll pay my taxes with it. I'll it will. Uh, so as soon as I push the button, it's going to be the video is going to be up on the on the YouTube page. Oh, okay. But then I download I download the audio and I edit it. I'll, you know, I'll, the the horrible thing you said about kittens, I will cut out. Right. But so you at the break, you like and you you. Stick a little music and and yeah, uh, yeah. Um, add add in there for Nike or something. Yeah, and I and I clean up the audio. Yeah. Like if we say um too much. Right. Um. Yeah. Okay. But anyway. All right. Yeah, that was really good. I really liked cool. it a lot. Cool. Yeah, it was fun. It's fun to do that. So I'm stopping the broadcast. Okay. What happens next? Does Google explode? Uh. No.
Bye. Bye.